Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. It's, uh, De- is that D'Angelo? Yeah, okay. It was driving me crazy what that was. All right. So that's D'Angelo. That's our show. Thanks very much for tuning in. And now it's, um, it's time for the nose. <laughs> <laughs> I seem a little discombobulated. That's because we all went out, except for Rebecca, who went and just saw this this morning. Uh, we all went out to see last night the brand new Star Wars movie. I saw mine at 10 o'clock at night uh, at a packed theater in Manchester full of people either dressed up as uh, Star Wars characters or people who think too much about Star Wars characters. I think Robert from Cat Person was like three rows behind me, actually. Um, so in, uh, by so, in so doing, I'm now uh, betraying our plan for the day. First of all, let me tell you who's here. Rebecca Castellani is entertainment director at Bridge Street Live in Collinsville, Connecticut. She is just back from seeing The Last Jedi, which she saw this morning. Rand Richards Cooper is a novelist, essayist, and critic. He writes the in our midst column for Hartford Magazine. He saw it last night at uh, on New Park Avenue. And, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then Pedro Soto is Chief <laughs> Operating Officer at Spacecraft Manufacturing in New Haven. I'm sure you went to some special by invitation yeah, only uh, Star Wars thing. The IMAX in, in Plainville, oh. 6 p.m. Uh, <laughs> Pedro is hardcore Star Wars, I just want to say. I'm amazed <laughs> that he didn't actually watch it with, you know, Boba Fett or something. Um, all right, so um, uh, how to get into this? Well, first of all, we have to say that the Star Wars franchise was revived uh, a few years ago. Uh, Disney now has um, some rights, and of course now Disney is in the process of acquiring everything else in the world, too. Uh, that's another story. J.J. Abrams has started to helm the thing, maybe take it a little bit away from some of the stuff that George uh, Lucas specialized in doing. Um, so uh, a few years ago, we were introduced to two uh, or three, three brand new Star Wars uh, characters who kind of do um, present a, a threesome. Uh, one of them is named Ray. She is a mysteriously powerful young lady in whom the force seems to be strong. Her parentage is basically pretty unknown. Uh, another one is a, a stormtrooper monkey named Finn who uh, <laughs> leaves the uh, bad guys and joins the good guys. He's played by the, the fabulous John Boyega. Uh, and then the last one is named Poe Dameron. Uh, he's a fighter pilot played by Oscar Isaacs. Uh, so we met all those uh, people in the last movie, The Force Awakens. That movie, I think, was kind of an exploration of the uh, of of, uh, of the the current plot line as seen through, I think those the first two characters, Ray uh, and Finn, kind of take us through uh, this new world and encounter some of our old favorite characters. I have no idea what the plot of the Last Jedi is. I think there are at least ten. <laughs> working plots in there. Pedro may be able to summarize all of them. We're going to try to do this without spoilers anyway. Yeah. But but maybe the first thing to do is just talk a little bit about just the experience of seeing it. So uh, I was in a packed theater last night. I assume you two guys were too, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I have watched I, in the past six days all eight of these films now because I went wow. back and watched them in, in order, not in order of their making, but I, yeah. I watched them in order uh, Episode narrative number narrative chronology. Yeah. Yeah. So last night was was really the capping experience. It, the, the, the theater was completely full and uh, and I was surrounded by by true fans. I mean, it was, it was interesting for me because 
I don't I, – I'm interested in these films. I like them. I was in high school uh, when the first one came out. So there's a certain autobiographical tracking for me and for <laughs> other people of my generation. But I've never been – uh, a, a captive to, uh, to to Star Wars ex- Star Wars exaltation, but I was surrounded by people who were the woman right to my left, and every seat was taken in the theater was dressed like uh, Princess Leia in with the old with the old hairdo. <laughs> there were some people dressed like the clone guards in the white outfits, and wow. afterward. People gathered in in knots in the clumps of people outside and began fiercely debating uh, the the film, its merits, whether it was worth a worthwhile part of the legacy. And I thought, you know, this is what being I, I don't know. I felt a little bit excluded by virtue of my I would say lukewarm, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, uh, take on on the whole series because I'm I'm not a fan in that way. Yeah, I felt that way at my first Scientology meeting. Like everybody <laughs> knew so much more than I did. Yeah. So Pedro, I'm assuming something similar too. Yeah, I. Uh, we went to uh, the the first sort of possible show that we could see, which was 6 p.m. in Plainville, uh, and it was it was packed, packed. Uh, I did count, I think, two uh, actually younger uh, kids dressed up as Ray, and uh, a few other you know, Yoda ears and the like. Uh, but it was, you know, seeing w- with an audience like that, obviously there's lots of cheers. There's lots of clapping when people show up. It's, uh, you know, so that was it's kind of fun. Did you join little knots of people in the parking lot debating? No, I, 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 I've done. I have a tradition. You I've, could I've, do that. <laughs> that's true. I right. could. But I, 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 leader. I've, I've gone. Well, I've gone with with a, a very good friend of mine from high school. Then we've basically seen each premiere starting from the special editions. Uh, we've seen opening night each time, so it's kind of our our thing, and and he and I do it. And as we get older, it, it's it's kind of fun to do. So, uh, so yeah, we we had discussion afterwards, but yeah. And so Rebecca, you saw you because in fact you are in charge of the incredibly florid nightlife of Collinsville. Um, <laughs> you were not able to see it last night. You went this morning. Yeah, my options were to go at two thirty last night after the busiest show we've ever had in our history, or go this morning at nine. So I went with the nine a.m. showing, which was very different from my co-panelist experience. It was me and about fifteen other people. Uh, three high school girls, everybody else in the room was uh, white male between the age of probably 50 and 60. All Nobody was dressed up. A very motley crew. 50% I, of those white males were seeing the movie for the second time. Yes. <laughs> I, I was aware. Yeah, right. I was very aware. Uh, yep. So uh, that was different. <laughs> all right. We're going to play a little uh, clip from the movie because I'm uh, wildly unprepared. I'm not even sure I understand uh, what clip this is. Oh, this is actually, well, we can't get a good clip because this is from the trailer. So you're going to hear uh, the aforementioned Ray. Uh, you're going to hear Luke Skywalker. We have to talk about that too. And you're going to hear Kylo Ren. Kylo Ren is the son uh, of, I'm not explaining this. Never mind. Just play the clip. <laughs> Something inside me has always been there. But now it's awake. And I need help. I've seen this raw strength only once before. It didn't scare me enough then. It does now. Let the past die. Kill it. If you have to. It's the only way to become what you were meant to be. I need someone. Show me my place in all this. 
All right, those are not sequential lines. Those are mm-hmm. like little things stitched together together from the trailer. Although, in my personal opinion, it wouldn't really matter that much. But <laughs> um, but I'm already betraying some of my uh, thoughts about this. I guess maybe the the thing to do is to break up into a little knot in the metaphorical parking lot and kind of just sort of see um, how things fit in. So, Rebecca, I'll start over uh, here with you first. Um, I mean, how does this? I mean, first of all, how does this add to or not add to this entire? Eight movie skein that uh, that Rand has now subjected himself to, um, or or just take it alone as a freestanding thing. It's your choice. I think it's difficult to take it alone because it kind of occupies the same space that The Empire Strikes Back did, in the sense that it's setting up a lot for the final act, um, and it's occupying that place. You know, the, the first movie does such a, a good job of setting up all these new characters and introducing them to you, and this one I felt. It meandered a little more. There was a lot of different threads of the plot going on, and I think a lot of that was necessary, and it probably wouldn't have been a successful film had it not taken that direction. But I certainly think that you have to definitely brush up in your Star Wars knowledge. This would not be a freestanding film that you could just go into having no knowledge of Star Wars and and understand (laughs) what's going on at all. But on the whole, I really, really liked it. I thought it was um, much less reliant on heavy-handed nostalgia. I thought The Force Awakens definitely... A lot of that plot was really repetitive um, from A New Hope. And I thought that the nostalgia it did rely on was less obvious and more inherent. It was, it was playing more into this idea of, you know, this generational shift. And you're seeing the original characters getting older and being replaced by these younger characters. It just didn't hit me over the head with the nostalgia like The Force Awakens did, which was my primary complaint with that film. All right. Um, all right. Peter, how about you? No, I, th- I think um – yeah, talking about uh, the the Force Awakens, I, I describe that as sort of a big nostalgia blanket. Yes. And in this movie, they just rip that blanket off. And um, I I will say I I loved the movie, and I actually felt while watching it. I mean, I see. Well, I I, I felt like wow, this movie's not really for me. It's for people that are coming after me. Like this is not yeah. the this is not the Star Wars, the send off of the final, the nice sort of like Return of the Jedi. Like yay, there's more Return of the Jedi and, and Empire Strikes Back. This is a new movie, and um, you know partially there's a commercial aspect. I think Disney saying, look, you know we need to be able to make Star Wars movies for the next twenty years. So how are we going to set this up? This is the movie that did it. I think it did it in an artistically interesting way. But it's a movie that that does flip the script and, and rip up the pages and, and says, okay, you know, we're starting anew, which is interesting for the middle chapter because uh, for after, I really don't know what's going to happen after this. It almost felt like you could have bookended Force Awakens onto the the original trilogy mm-hmm. and then had this be the beginning of a whole new series. One hundred percent, yeah, or even like. You could end the the trilogy, I think, at this movie. Yeah, right. that's and, true. And do something totally new. Yeah. Peter, you realize you're not that old, right? Yes, um, but <laughs> the um, by the way, we're going to try to discuss this about <laughs> spoiling anything that's in this movie. Although I think we feel free to spoil things that are previous movies, like you know. <clears throat> I yeah. mean, Han Solo is dead now, right? We can say that. It came out two years ago. Yeah, I think we're good. Mm-hmm. Bruce Willis has actually did the whole time in six <laughs> uh, Well, we can spoil other movies, but not this one. So, Rand, uh, now it's your turn. So, having watched eight of these in, in a week, <laughs> a, a, you know, a, cer- a certain amount of it blurs and blends together, and you'd be hard-pressed to, to, to extract all the, the plot lines. Although, essentially, really, the same thing keeps repeating over and over again. The Empire is up. Mm-hmm. The Rebellion is up. Uh, and they seesaw back and forth. But I do think you can divide the eight and soon nine films into these three sub-trilogies. And, and they do have, when you go back through them all, each has its own character. I was surprised to go back to the original three, which I had watched as a mm-hmm. late teenager in, in college, 
um, and and see uh, how sort of cutesy they were. So much humor that attached to the two droids. And also with the byplay between uh, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker and Leia thrown in, having a sort of Butch, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid-like jaunty humor to it. And that, for me, defines the, the first three. The prequels, which, which then came out in, in the uh, 90s. 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 Those, strike, those seem to be the weakest element mm-hmm. of the nine. There's, there's, it's, it's all dutiful backstory in, mm-hmm. uh, in order to fill in the things that we had assumed. And there is an interest in watching CGI effects grow <laughs> during that period. In George those, R. Banks. Yeah. Right. In those three, the, the, the period of those three prequel movies really covers uh, a sort of revolutionary improvements in CGI. And you can see that from movie to movie. It's terrible in the first mm-hmm. one. It's pretty good by the third one. The two new films, uh, and this one in particular now, as we said, are carrying it forward. We see the, the, the visual effects are now state of the art. And honestly, I like this current film a lot. I think the closing sequence, which involves a huge battle playing out on a desert, on a salt desert where the salt is red, so that when yeah. things go through the, the, the sand, they dig up these red plumes. The, the, the last sequence is really visually magnificent. Yeah. I, I, found it, I found it exhilarating. Yeah. And the other thing I would say about this one that surprised me is that it's funny – in yeah. in ways that the other films haven't haven't quite been and and uh, it's in terms of the way that the dialogue is written to change suddenly into into a comic register and I I'd, I'd love to you know to talk about the funniness of this film which was <laughs> yeah. unexpected it kind of reminds yeah. me of what Marvel's kind of doing now too where they're pivoting away from this very somber serious death toll mm-hmm. just racking up the death count whereas there you can pair that now with a little bit of humor a little bit of that audience injection and that there's a great moment in the beginning I don't think this is much of a spoiler where Poe Dameron goes up against General Hux, one of the main generals, and it comes down to a gag about a comm system where he's, oh, you sh- I'm still on the line, can I hold? And it's, it's this sudden, almost slapstick-level humor that I was never expecting from a Star Wars movie, but I thought it really worked. Although so, I would argue, yeah. that, first of all, I didn't like this movie. <laughs> I thought the last half hour was actually pretty good, um, but I think it's a very long movie. It has about ten plot lines, mm-hmm. as far as I, I can tell. and, and Most the, of which go nowhere. Well, most of which go yeah. nowhere, and, and really, I think if you have ten plot lines, you have no plot. Um, so, um, I, I think I think they don't manage. I thought a lot about Marvel last night, too, Rebecca, and I think Marvel is so good at this, and yeah. they've ramped up the humor uh, you know, obviously, Guardians of the Galaxy mm-hmm. is mainly yeah. a comedy at this point. Um, I, I think one of the problems with Star Wars is that we're accustomed to a certain level of you. You should pardon the expression, gravity mm-hmm. uh, from from the characters in certain situations. And what they tended to do was kind of blow up those moments. Sometimes there'd be something mm-hmm. kind of serious. There, there is a reunion between two of the old characters. I won't say which ones. And then there's like a hair joke or something like just at the moment. Where I hated that. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that they, made me roll my eyes. I think they don't know how to do it as well as Marvel does. I don't. I think they don't know where to deploy it. Um, I think Ryan Johnson, who is the director of this movie and who directed a movie I love so much. He Looper. Directed, no, Brick. 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 Oh. Brick. I love Brick. Great movie. Brick is a fabulous movie, a very nearly perfect movie, but I don't think he handles this material well. There's a very helter-skelter ADD quality to this to me where it's, you know, things – and things happen. There are transitions that make no sense. People show up in spaceships that you have no idea how they got off one spaceship and onto another spaceship. I could get specific, but I won't. Um, people suddenly evince emotions that there's been no groundwork for. One of the mm. characters declares love for another character. There is, has been a hint of that. Um, I just feel like this is not a very well-made movie. But I also know that I am either, you know, I'm one of the two grumpy old Muppet guys probably sitting there saying all this. (laughs) No, I think that 
I mean, I, I think you have a good point in terms of, of, of how wide the movie is. Um, I mean, I think I, I can see, you can see kind of what he was trying to do. And in some cases, I think it's, it is like a lot of the traditional Star Wars tropes all really get turned on, on its head, every single one. So if you look at, um, you know, Poe Dameron, um, you know, and I'm not going to go too much into spoiler territory, but um, nothing he does is particularly effective in the movie. Yeah. Right. And, and and that's driven home very, very hard. Yeah, the trope of like points. the Han Solo cocky flyboy, he's going to come in at the last yeah. second and fix things. That is completely subverted in this movie yep. in favor of, you know, f- cooler heads prevail and cooler female heads prevail. Yes, I was just going to say that. Cooler female heads and a totally different way of handling situations yep. that we've ever seen. Yeah. That's a good point. That's yeah. a really good point. There, um, about the plot incoherence, I agree with you, Colin, and, and particularly that subplot that involves uh, the code breaker right. uh, played by um, Benicio Hill. Uh, yeah, but, right. And and I mean that that goes literally nowhere. It's a completely useless appendage to the plot. So, actually, in fact, what it actually does is, if that plot didn't happen, the movie would have the, the plot in the movie actually goes better. Right, <laughs> it gets annoying. You could take but, that whole and, thing out. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I will say, um, you, you, you call him, you said we expect a certain gravity. Well, one of the things that you have to accommodate yourself to if, if you watched the initial films and fell in love in a, in mm-hmm. a dark way with, with Darth Vader, for me, once Darth Vader is killed, it, it's a little bit like, a, uh, yeah, right, in a, in a prior. What? In a, well, come on. We said we can do spoilers for films that are at least, you know, 20 years old. Um, it, for me, it's a little bit like American Idol, you know, without Simon Cowell. It, yeah. it, it, it loses something at the center of it. Now we've replaced with this uh, Adam Driver plays this, this kind of uh, Darth Vader wannabe. But um, the, the, uh, the, our understanding of Darth Vader has uh, – of the Darth Vader-like character has now been moved fully into a kind of therapeutic uh, context in which his – uh, family problems and relational problems, which were always implicit. I mean, because there was always the question of of patrimony, bloodlines, and 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 family destiny it was always a part of the Vader thing. But now, a driver is such a tormented villain that you're constantly really feeling quite sorry for him. Right. And I think that is very effective. They, they replaced Simon Cowell with Howard Stern. I, I'm not uh, saying that's bad. I'm just saying. Shows, right, too. Right. I, I mean, I <laughs> right. think that if you had done a, a shot for shot recreation of Vader as they did in The Force Awakens with Death Killer Death Star Base, whatever mm-hmm. that silly, silly name was for the Death Star. That was what was so tedious and stale for me about The Force Awakens, whereas kind of delving more into the fact of, you know, Kylo Ren isn't as cut and dry evil character and that Snoke is manipulating mm-hmm. that and Ray's manipulating that. And he's, I thought that made for a more interesting, nuanced villain than what we've seen it in the past from Star Wars. More nuanced, I feel like Adam Driver's on set saying to the director, wait a minute, what am I supposed to be feeling right now? Tell yeah. me again, like, what is my state of mind right now? Because it, it floats around so much. Uh, we're going to run out of time because we have to go to a fundraising break and I, I the one thing I want to say you can all respond to this is <laughs> if anybody was wondering why Mark Hamill didn't have big acting careers like the other people oh. on this <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> you know, He's do, terrible. <laughs> He's a terrible actor. Do you have to, there was that great line from Edelstein's review. Uh, call him uh, Luke, Luke Cave Sulker, but, um, uh, which, which I loved. But I, I do want to make a pitch for the humor in the film, which, which you didn't like. Although, one, one thing the film does very well is it brings the fascist and Nazi visual iconography to its most glorious Wagnerian fulfillment. 
And it has always been the case that the rebellion th- – th- this tracks sort of World War I uh, opposition – World War II oppositions mm-hmm. and enmities with, with the rebellion being you know, with their dingy, broken down mm-hmm. uh, vehicles and their slapdash, jaunty humor. That, the, those are the Americans. Right. The, the Americans who during the middle of the war issue this song, you know, we've we hiled right into Fuhrer's face. <laughs> humor and, and, and a jaunty jokingness has always been on the side of the rebellion while – while the empire revels in this in this you know right. Nazi humorlessness, you know, Pedro, I can give you ten seconds yeah. to say something really geeky. Uh, if you want to? You don't have to. Okay, no pressure. <laughs> no, I don't want to create all kinds of performance so, questions. I, I was enraptured with what Rand was saying. All right, so. so actually, we should take a break. Some people, is it happening now? Right, we're doing. A, I'm t- so confused about the clock. All right, so we're going to do a pledge break right now. It would be so great if you like uh, conversations like this one. Or even if you don't, really, if you would still pledge, it would be uh, something we would be very grateful for because it's the last day and we really need to do well, especially our show. We are indeed back. This is The Nose, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, we are about to uh, shift tracks here uh, quite a bit uh, in the studio, Ran Richards Cooper uh, and Pedro Soto and Rebecca Castellani. Uh, and we are about to move um, from a two and a half or whatever it is hour movie to a short story that you can read in 20 minutes, uh, maybe even less than that. It's called Cat Person. It's in The New Yorker. If you haven't heard about it, it means you have no social media account <laughs> currently because it is – I mean this is sort of unheard of. This is a, uh, a piece of short fiction in the New Yorker that has absolutely gone viral has I think way more than two million reads on the on-site uh, version and that's not even counting all the people like me who read it in a paper magazine. Um, it, it's uh, been widely debated in lots of different ways. Uh, it is um, um, there are people who get very excited about it without quite understanding that it's fiction for example because they came upon it online and they don't know that much about fiction online. Uh, anyway, there's so many things to say about it. It is basically the story of two people who um, who meet, who flirt, who whose initial encounter is mostly uh, through texts, uh, through digital communication. Uh, after one face-to-face meeting, things ramp up. Uh, it turns into a date. The date is, uh, at least from one person's point of view, a pretty bad date. Uh, and then there is uh, a little bit of the story of the breakup. We're going to talk enough about this. It's going to be hard to talk about this without spoiling it a little bit. Um, so I don't know what to say other than you've had all week to read the story. <laughs> uh, we're going to have to sort of say certain things. Uh, we're going to play a little clip of it. Uh, this is Kristen Rupanian, the author, I think, reading a bit of her story. When Margot returned to campus, she was eager to see Robert again, but he turned out to be surprisingly hard to pin down. Sorry, busy week at work, he replied. I promise I will see you soon. Margot didn't like this. It felt as if the dynamic had shifted out of her favor. And when eventually he did ask her to go to a movie, she agreed right away. The movie he wanted to see was playing at the theater where she worked, but she suggested that they see it at the big multiplex just outside town instead. Students didn't go there very often because you needed to drive. Robert came to pick her up in a muddy white Civic with candy wrappers spilling out of the cup holders. On the drive, he was quieter than she'd expected, and he didn't look at her very much. Before five minutes had gone by, she became wildly uncomfortable, and as they got on the highway, it occurred to her that he could take her someplace and rape and murder her. She hardly knew anything about him, after all. Just as she thought this, he said, Don't worry, I'm not going to murder you. And she wondered if the discomfort in the car was her fault, because she was acting jumpy and nervous, like the kind of girl who thought she was going to get murdered every time she went on a date. It's okay, you can murder me if you want, she said. And he laughed and patted her knee. 
All right. So there have been lots of arguments about what kind of story this even is. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure that all of us in the room would even agree about what kind of story it is. But we'll find out about that. Rebecca, I'm going to begin with you. And maybe the way to get in, first of all, is to say, why do you suppose, and I don't think there's just one answer, but why do you suppose this thing has turned into the phenomenon that it has become? Well, it's certainly not because it is an exceptional piece of writing in and of itself. It's nothing new. Um, in places, I didn't even think it was that well written. Um, but I think it speaks to the moment we're in right now in the wake of Me Too and all these sexual harassment allegations that are coming out. This idea that we're, we're starting to re-understand, or at least maybe for the first time for some of us, understand the, the positions women are often in in the most seemingly innocuous situations. So something that seems just like a date that might not be going so well actually has all this subtext that females, I think, a lot of the times um, find themselves in. You know, this idea that seems it's played a little bit for a laugh in this that, you know, he could kill, rape and murder me in the car. I mean, that <laughs> certainly has crossed my mind every time I've gotten into the car with somebody I'm not particularly <laughs> aware of or, or comfortable with. Um, so I think it's just the fact that people are latching onto this speaks to the moment we're in in the sense that we were re... I don't think we're re... Uh, understanding this so much as the context has changed a little bit. This is all coming out in the open now, and it's causing this discussion that we haven't really made a ton of space for in society in the past. So I think that that's more what's going on here than anything else. And I think it's a very important piece um, for everyone to read and everyone to discuss. And the differences, I think, that in your reading of it is the is the crux of it. I mean, what you react to it versus what I react to it, that's the point of the story, not the story itself. Right. Well, yeah. So, Ryan, how, how did you react to this? And do, is, do you have a different way of thinking about it? Well, not that I, I agree that uh, the reason that this, this story went viral clearly has to do with its adjacency to hashtag Me Too and, and to uh, what, what's, what's in the cultural social air right now. Uh, the story is centrally about a woman who has sex that she, she doesn't want, ultimately doesn't want to have. And it's very skillful. The encounter is skillfully rendered by the writer because it's it's repulsive. It's repugnant to the woman as she's experiencing it. And we, as the reader, are are skillfully invited to share that sense of revulsion. Now, what complicates this for for the for the discussion <laughs> about hashtag Me Too is that she, the woman, if anyone initiates this encounter, it's the woman. Um, he is the, the man is actually apparently not expecting to go home and have sex with her, but but she, for reasons that we could discuss, acting on on a on an impulse, decides that, and acting on a certain fantasy of this person that she has created in her mind, decides that she wants to have sex with him. And then, as it happens, he's gross, uh, and and it's gross, but she submits to it anyway, and uh, and it, and it's that. That specter of a of a woman submitting to sex that she doesn't want to have that obviously is resonating with with. But with he pursued her mm -hmm. from the beginning. He was the one that asked her out for her number originally. He asked her on the date. He though he was meek uh, to some mm. extent. He yeah. was the one that she, was initiated. No, she, her the, the initial flirtation is hers. Right. right? I mean, the first thing she you read in the story is that she says she's fallen into the habit of flirting with her customers. But flirting uh, with a customer doesn't right. necessarily mean that that's an honest. You but know, she, women he, flirt in a lot of contexts because that's a defense mechanism. She does a lot of things like go home and then text to him that she's talking to her parents about him. She's talking to her father about him. I mean, she really. I have to agree with Rand that I, I see this as a much more two-sided. I story. think it's two-sided, but I, I think to she say drags that him out she, of the bar. 
She drags him out of the bar and says, come on, let's go home. And he's surprised. Remember, he, this he, is rendered. He says, he says you're drunk. He's, right. He, he, he kind of. Anyway, we haven't heard from Pedro yet. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think part, part of it, um, part of the, the reaction, I think, to this is, is some of the, the, um, the debate and everything that it's generated. But also, especially like in the email uh, thread that we had, I think, you know, you were bringing other, uh, so the, the producers on, and, you know, I think that there was some, you know, Rebecca Kayone had some just really amazing, um, just thoughts of putting this into the context of why this this is so important and sort of how women feel in, in situations like this. And I think that, you know, this is sort of one of those cases where, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's I, you can see the online debate. You know, you see the, the guys who realize that like they too are Robert and things. And I think that's you know, I think that's one of the reasons why there's continuing debate. Mm-hmm. And, and and part of it is, is just like, you know, the, there there is sort of like this. How do I say it? You know, I think you know, like the women the, the side of this is sort of like, listen, you got to like listen to us on this. Mm-hmm. Don't identify with this guy. Identify like with me, right? Don't don't or not don't like even if you're ne- identifying in a negative way. Just identify with with the female experience on this because it ultimately really is about that and is less about him. See, I, I would disagree with that. I mean, I, I Rand's got his end. I mean, I, let me just say that I I think it's a if it's a good story, it's a good story because in fact it explores. Mm-hmm. It explores something that Louis C.K., uh, who's now, of course, damned for life, uh, has talked about, which is that men are afraid of women's rejection. Um, women are afraid of men for the reasons that Rebecca is talking about. As Margaret Atwood said, it's the same thing, right? That women, men are afraid that women will laugh at them. Uh, women are afraid that men will kill them. And I think that there's um, that yeah. element of it, why she goes home with him. I don't think she's going home. I think she may express that outwardly, but subconsciously, she's already gone too far. And to back out at that point and right. say, she doesn't want to seem like a, I'm not interested, mm-hmm. that ultimately gets you into more trouble than sometimes just lying on your back and thinking of England. But I mean, even but, after the event, she mm. still is feeling terrible yes. about breaking up with this right. guy, yeah, she, even though she, yeah, it was awful. I think one of the really I'll get to you in a second, but I think one of the one of the ways that's conveyed. She uh, one at, at another point in the story, this rather curt, abrupt text mm. is sent under unusual circumstances to this man, and as it as it goes, Margot she pictures him shattering like glass. Mm-hmm. So she seems to understand. I, I mean, I think that the, that yes, you can read the story as. Um, a cautionary story or, or a salutary story about the situation that we're in. But I don't think you're reading the story the way that it's written when you do that. I think it's a story about two people who do everything wrong and wind up frightening and hurting, hurting each other. Well, and the reason that they do everything wrong, and this is where I think we're maybe speaking at an angle to one of the ways in which the story has struck a, a resonant chord with people, is that it's a cautionary tale about the kind of relationships and the way relationships are formed through social media. This is a this is a, a theme throughout this story. It's very skillful of the writer. The, the story is a is Rebecca said at the beginning. It's not a great piece of writing. It's it's a extremely limited piece of writing. It's skillfully limited by the writer. There are so many things we don't learn about any of these characters. So many things that are mm-hmm. kept out. The sto- the narrative proceeds one thing after another and it remains exclusively focused on the moment-to-moment interactions and the way in which this woman is responding to those interactions. And, and that's intentional. Yeah. I think and, she's well, doing no, no, that. No, that's why I say it. It's very skillful. But, but the way that, that she's responding has everything to do with what the two of them have put out on, you know, in their texting with each other. This is a relationship whose reality has is solely a matter of text. And mm-hmm. when 
the real physical person comes in and they're actually together, she finds, for instance, she misses the guy that she had created this texting relationship mm-hmm. with. There's a, there's a carefully constructed disparity in the story between the actual embodied presence of another human being, which right. is highly problematic, and the, and the textu- texted constructed fantasy right, the of that human being. I, I agree 100 percent, I think, with the, the way that everything goes. The one thing is but for the final word of the story. It, right. That that so you know you 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 remove everything but for that final word, and I think we have a valid criticism. But she intentionally put in that final word, but and I are, think that that is are, different than the rest of it. I think the story would be better without the final word. And I mean, I'm not yes. alone in this, and I'm not. That's not a male point of view. Julia Turner was the first person, uh, the editor of Slate, was the first person I heard say that. But I, I think it's a better story. The final word, we won't say what the final word is, but he he finally says something really horrible, basically, having been sort of stalking her a little bit by text. But that's how those situations almost always end. Mm. They never right. just end with where we would like the story. We would, you know, say it would be a better story if, because that's not the reality here. It is, as, mm. you know, everyone I know has been mm. on the receiving end of a text like that where a guy can't figure out why he's been rejected, so he results to name-calling mm. or worse. And I think that that is what made it so powerful, was that mm. I could see that coming a mile away. I was waiting for it. Mm-hmm. And if that hadn't come... Yes, it, I think it would have been more ambiguous, but the point for me was not that this was, you know, two people navigating situations. This was a story that every single person can relate to because we've all done this with somebody where the relationship over text message is stronger than it is in person because that's safe. That's comfortable. You're, you're able to connect with somebody through the safety of a screen as opposed to having to be in person and risk physical, you know, harm coming to you if you decide, you know, this person isn't for me. I'm not interested in doing this. And I think that that is something that as a, as a female, I've had to navigate a lot with this internet world we're in is how you can connect with someone in a safe way that's not through the written word. So I'm interested in the title, Cat People. It cat has... Person. Cat Person. Cat Person. Um, so it, it has, you know, a throwaway relevance in that one, the character claims to have cats, mm-hmm. but then we never see the cats. Mm-hmm. But uh, I wonder, you know, what what other resonances does this does this title have in the story? Well, it's, it's before they answer that, I, I do. Jonathan forwarded something to to me anyway uh, about. I mean, the virality of this story also has something to do with the fact that this is. I mean, when Shirley Jackson's The Lottery came out, you could only just sort of read it in a magazine. People could just share this stuff very very quickly. It goes all over the place. It has a kind of disturbing and vivid picture that pops up when you do share it uh, on social media, which this, I think draws people to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah which I think draws people to it even more. And that phrase, cat person, uh, as somebody said, uh, that's going to stick around. No matter what else, it'll be, how was your date last night? Uh, not so good. Total cat person. Uh, <laughs> and everybody's going to know what that means. Yeah. But anyway, yeah. Uh, to Rand's question? I, yeah. Like, I mean, do you take that title to mean simply, oh, that he calls himself a cat person, so he's a cat person? Well, there was... Go ahead. Go ahead. No, well, I was just going to say there's no evidence of the cats when she gets to the apartment. So this idea that you can say – that people say what they want you to hear and he thought being a cat person makes him less you know, harmful. Mm-hmm. A, a cat mm-hmm. person is a pretty innocuous thing to be. If you're On the spectrum of intimidation, cat person is pretty low. Yeah. So it's that signifier, oh, you can trust me. I'm a good guy. Yeah. I'm a cat person. Yeah, I, I, and then when she gets to the house, there are no cats – you know, it's that kind of insidious undertone mm-hmm. that I think a lot of people can just kind of whoop, whoop, read past that. Oh, you're a cat person. It's just, oh, 
you know, that's a derogatory thing to call somebody a cat person a lot of the times. And he used that to gain a level of trust that mm-hmm. was then subverted mm-hmm. when there was no cats. Right. I, I agree. Yeah, that's definitely like the guy dude with cats, right? Yeah. Oh, he has cats. That yeah. means he's, you know, and I think that you know, there's, um, I mentioned this in our email that there is, you know, there's a, there's a Saturday Night Live skit, which kind of reduces some of the story into mm-hmm. kind of a bar situation where um, I think it's Cecily Strong is at a bar waiting for her friends and she's talking to all of these woke men and, and then each one in turn mm-hmm. um, hits on her. And, you know, they have they're wearing Hillary T-shirts and everything. And, uh, you know, the second that she rejects them uh, in the nicest way possible, they just turn on her, yep. you know, mm-hmm. call her a slut, do all sorts of terrible things. And, uh, you know, one after the other after the other. And I think that also that that's kind of maybe playing a little bit on this in terms of, um, you know, this is sort of like the potentially safest guy out there, uh, you know, and, and, and yet this still happens. Another possibility is that cat person is also a little bit of a reference to so-called catfishing uh, when you misrepresent yeah. yourself online and, and, and uh, bring somebody to the table that mm-hmm. way. I will also tell you that there is there are all kinds of other ancillary things, Twitter accounts, uh, special Twitter accounts for this story or for men's reactions to this story. And there's also on McSweeney's uh, Robert. They, Robert is the male character in this story. It's his Reddit post. Uh, (laughs) I'm not like other men. (laughs) Simulated Reddit post about what he thinks went wrong. Uh, All right. So we're going to stop. We're going to come back. We're going to endorse some things after this. You're a cat person. That seals it. I think you're that person. You steal it, my time. I'm working on a new version of that short story, totally from one of the cat's point of view. Today's show was produced by Jar Jar Pants and me, Kyone Wolf. Amanda Fish is not a cat person. The part of Bill Curry was played by Shirley Jackson. On Monday show, we let the listeners sound off about public radio sex scandals. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, I'm going to actually sort of uh, open the phones as much as possible on Monday because obviously public radio has been hit by the sexual misconduct stories, maybe more than almost any sector you can think of. Uh, David Fulkenflick will kind of help me out at the top. He's, of course, the great media reporter for NPR. But I want to hear what listeners think about this, too. I mean, the landscape has changed quite a bit just in in terms of the voices you've gotten used to. So I want you to call in and tell me what that means to you. All right. So uh, it's now time to recommend things. Before we recommend things individually, I will quickly point out that I believe yesterday was Irene Papoulos' birthday. Of course, she's a foundational nose member. and She has her own nose term of art and stuff like that. And then our really good friend Carolyn Payne is, although although her last name now has double meanings, uh, Carolyn Payne, who does many things, but she does this wonderful thing called the Nutcracker Sweet and Spicy. It launches this weekend. It's kind of a re-rendering of the Nutcracker. It's a lot of fun and it's kind of uh, sassy and we do recommend that you go and see it. Uh, I assume it's still in the Avery Theater of the Wadsworth Athenaeum. All right. We've only got about four minutes left, so we'll have to speed date through our recommendations. Okay, real quick. Um, Netflix, she's got to have it. Uh, Spike Lee, great. Highly recommend. Um, and I think I've uh, endorsed this before, I want to say. Um, Bright Lights, it's the Carrie Fisher, Debbie Reynolds documentary. I was really struck by Carrie's performance, obviously her last in the Star Wars film. So if you're looking for a little more depth into Carrie and her humor and her mother's humor and their wonderful relationship, uh, Bright Lights is highly recommended. It's on HBO. Pedro? Um, I will have a, a quick one. Uh, probably my 
one of my favorite books of the year, which I've just been thinking about uh, the past few weeks, has been uh, American War, which I think you did have the author on earlier this year. You missed my endorsement of you recommending that to me, and I endorsed it. Oh, so. really? Yeah. Oh, this is like a double endorsement <laughs> yep. by Omar El-Akkad. Yes, I did have Omar on earlier. Yes, and, uh, you know, it's it's about the second uh, civil war in the United States that was going to happen in the next uh, 50 years or so. And uh, it's, it's a great read. Um, it's a very just sublime um, read, I think. Um, it, you know, the characters are beautifully written. Um, it's a it's a quick one, so if you want a, some sort of dystopian reading over the Christmas break, that's what I suggest. <laughs> it is, I'll, I can endorse that too. I love that book. Yesterday was the fifth anniversary of the shooting at Sandy Hook, as as many of you know. And uh, there's a website called mysandyhookfamily.org, and it has capsule descriptions of the of the people. Uh, who died that day, written by their families. And it's and also with links to other sites and and uh, and and fundraising uh, possibilities that related to their lives on a much more and and it's profoundly moving. I, I spent a good deal of time on it today. on a, on a much more upbeat note, Every Thursday night, and I don't know how long it'll go on, but on Bravo Network at 10 p.m. is Top Chef, and <laughs> our local yes. Top Chef, Tyler Anderson of Millwright, is competing. He's done great in the first two rounds. Tyler's a great guy. I, I, I know him, and I love his restaurant, um, and uh, so I, I would certainly recommend go to Top Chef and support our local chef. I left out part of the Nutcracker story. Uh, first of all, it's the Edna Theater, the Wadsworth Athenaeum, and uh, Carolyn Payne has broken her ankle in two places. I know that's not really funny, but she can't dance, obviously, so... So I, we're hoping she'll have a cameo of some kind and uh, get better, Carolyn. We love you. Um, we're going to go out with the, one of my endorsements, maybe my endorsement. I first of all feel like the world is different because Lin-Manuel Miranda is in it. You know, I mean, I just feel like the cultural landscape is different. So one of the things that he's doing, you can start playing it right now, Wolfie. He's releasing some songs that he didn't use in Hamilton. This is a song that you're, uh, oh, I see. Um, uh, this is a song about Benjamin Franklin. Uh, he, he's releasing this one in connection in collaboration with the Decemberists. So this isn't anybody from Hamilton or Lynn himself uh, singing this. This is the Decemberists. I think this is a really brilliant idea, and apparently he's going to do more of this. He Maybe like once a month he's going to drop a song that kind of didn't make it into Hamilton, and I think he's going to do it in collaboration with other artists. So you can find this right now on Spotify or whatever streaming service you use. Um, and I, I'm, I'm excited about this. I'm excited to see the next 10 years of Lin-Manuel Miranda. I just, you know, I think he's such a prodigious, prodigious talent. And so I'm very excited to see, as we are with Sondheim, some of these missing songs. I can't disagree. They have guns. They have funds. They can set us free. Invest in my reputation.